Hey there, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of the New Discourses podcast. This is James Lindsay. I'm going to give you a short summary of a particular topic, kind of in a one-off. And today, what we're going to actually discuss is whether or not critical education, which has kind of taken over education entirely, Paulo Freire's education system in particular, whether or not that constitutes a First Amendment violation in the United States. Now, obviously, the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment says that the government of the United States will not establish, and in other words, will not really promote a religion through its official channels. But I think that when we look at what critical pedagogy, as it's called, or critical education theory represents, when we look back to the person it's based off of, who is this character, this Brazilian, Paulo Freire, it becomes impossible to conclude that he taught anything other than a religion that our schools are now endorsing by teaching his methods throughout our schools. So i got to be tight with this, and there's a lot to say to kind of make the case. But the religious tone, what I'm focusing on is this book, The Politics of Education, that I've been spending a lot of time with, uh, which Friday published in 1985, uh, it is the book that actually got him recognized in the U.S. education system. It is the book that brought his other works to the center of North American education and education in the United States. And the religious tone in this book is so explicit and so central to what Fred is doing that his kind of disciple and evangelist, Henry Giroux, in the foreword that he wrote to the book, um, actually remarks that what Freddy is describing here is a permanent prophetic vision for what education means and what it might achieve. That's very religious. Um, this language actually echoes Freddy's own call in the book that churches like schools have to be wholly remade in his image, uh, meaning in the Freudian image, um, at which point they will become, if they're churches, for Freddy the prophetic church. So we can imagine schools in parallel to the prophetic church that gives a permanent prophetic vision for education and a new society. And in fact, what it prophesies is a liberated utopia, a Marxist utopia, or neo-Marxist if we're splitting hairs. Um, so listen in the introduction to the politics of education that Henry Giroux wrote, how he describes uh, Freire's work. He says, as the reader will discover in this book, Freire is a harsh critic of the reactionary church. At the same time, he situates his faith and his uh, sense of hope in the God of history, that's the Marxist reinterpretation of God, by the way, and of the oppressed, whose teachings make it impossible, in Freire's words, to, quote, reconcile Christian love with the exploitation of human beings. Within the discourse of the theologies of liberation, Freire fashions a powerful theoretical antidote to the cynicism and despair of many left radical critics. The utopian character of his analysis is concrete in its nature and appeal, and that takes as its starting point collective actors in their various historical settings and the particularity of their problems and forms of oppression. It is utopian only in the sense that it refuses to surrender to the risks and dangers that face all challenges to dominant power structures. It is prophetic in that it views the kingdom of God as something to be created on earth, but only through a faith in both other human beings and the necessity of permanent struggle. The notion of faith that emerges in Freire's work is informed by the memory of the oppressed, the suffering that must not be allowed to continue, and the need to never forget that the prophetic vision is an ongoing process, a vital aspect of the very nature of human life. 
In short, by combining the discourses of critique and possibility, Freire joins history and theology in order to provide the theoretical basis for a radical pedagogy that combines hope, critical reflection, and collective struggle. <clears throat> so what we see here then is that the goal of Freudian education is to build the kingdom of God on earth. As a, as, as a pedagogy, as a theory of education, and that this is done through faith, this is, a, this, this is extraordinary. Um, and the faith is specifically Marxist, right? And so we're, how is this not going to be? A First Amendment violation. It's clear he says that this, you know, must not be allowed to continue, which means that there is a duty of conscience given to what's happening, which the First Amendment requires. Jurisprudence around the First Amendment requires duties of conscience coming out of a philosophy or a religious practice in order for it to count as religion by First Amendment standards. He says also that it's a vital aspect of the very nature of human life, but that means it's a fundamental aspect of the very nature of human life. It answers what it fundamentally means to be human in Marxist terms. How is this not a religion? So this is a paradigm-shifting book in education, and it seems a little odd that it's this religious in character. Um, but it gets worse. In chapters 8 and 10 of this book, Freire explicitly claims that to be effective, teachers must live personally, existentially, he says, through a kind of personal Easter that awakens them to a full Marxist political consciousness. Otherwise, he actually says that they are necrophiliac, meaning death-loving, as it was used by the uh, neo-Marxist psychologist Eric Fromm, whom Freire cites on the point. In fact, what Freire says here is that this is the only true meaning of Easter, and that without it, Christians, as well as educators, are merely going through the dead rhetoric of, you know, ritual or tradition or whatever that turns the event, this is Easter we're talking about, into just another date on the calendar. So Freire's giving a literal reinterpretation of Easter here at the heart of education theory that's a permanent prophetic vision to rebuild the kingdom of God here on earth, and everybody must participate in because it's a vital part of what it means to be human. This is his education theory. Okay, so Freire is literally calling the existing society a death cult, and any functioning educational system within it just a mode of maintaining and reproducing it, meaning that you have to use his prophetic version instead. And his answer is that religious program. He calls to remake education entirely as an imposing form of religious education, into a political consciousness on the side of the oppressed. To accomplish this, though, he specifically calls upon educators to die to the existing order of society and as elitists, and to resurrect themselves as people with Marxist consciousness so that they can share this with others. Literally, he, sa literally, he says this. I'm, I'm going to read it to you. The new apprenticeship, this is Freire, will violently break down the elitist concept of the existence they had absorbed while being ideologized. The sine qua non the apprenticeship demands is that first of all they really experience their own Easter, that they die as elitists so as to be resurrected on the side of the oppressed, that they be born again with the beings who were not allowed to be. Such a process implies a renunciation of myths that are dear to them, 
the myth of their superiority, of their purity of soul, of their virtues, their wisdom, the myth that they save the poor, the myth of the neutrality of the church, of theology, education, science, technology, the myth of their own impartiality. From these grow other myths of the inferiority of other people, of their spiritual and physical impurity, and that of the absolute ignorance of the oppressed. This Easter, which results in the changing of consciousness, must be existentially experienced. The real Easter is not commemorative rhetoric. It is praxis. It is historical involvement. By the way, lawyers, that's a duty of conscience. The old Easter of rhetoric is dead with no hope of resurrection. It is only in the authenticity of historical praxis that Easter becomes the death that makes life possible. But the bourgeois worldview, basically necrophiliac, death-loving, and therefore static, is unable to accept the supremely biophiliac, life-loving experience of Easter. The bourgeois mentality, which is far more than just a convenient abstraction, kills the profound historical dynamism of Easter and turns it into no more than a date on the calendar. In my copy of The Politics of Education, that's on pages 122 and 123. That's really there. So that's already pretty theological, right? That is already pretty theological. And we could get into the whole thing about how he was a, a, a Paulo Freire was a liberation theologian, how he worked with liberation theologians in um, Brazil, including uh, the Marxist so-called red priest or red bishop, uh, Dom Helder Camara, famous communist bishop of Recife there in Brazil. Um, we could talk about all of that. We could talk about how he took an appointment in 1969 or 70 or thereabouts and went to Geneva to work for the World Council of Churches to bring liberation theology to Europe and to the ecumenical council being held there. Lots of reasons to see him as a religious figure. But nevertheless, um, I just want to focus on the blatantly religious tone here and what he's saying education is actually about because I think he constitutes a First Amendment violation in what he's doing. And when you realize that his educational method is at the backbone of all of critical pedagogy, and therefore is at the backbone, and, and its goals, and therefore is at the backbone of all of the education, basically, that we have in North America today, we have the state sponsoring religious education in a religion that doesn't present itself as such. Okay? Because this guy's no small deal. His book, his one book, his most famous book, his most cited book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which is not this book, is the third most cited piece of academic literature, period, in the humanities and social sciences. He is given, that book and his other work is given pride of place in every, every college of education in North America. So to the degree that his pedagogy has informed public schools in the United States and each of its 50 states, one might suspect that he's butting up against a heretofore unrecognized establishment clause challenge that nobody's doing anything with. Because visible here are both a conception of life and the ultimate questions of what it means to be a human and to live in the world, but also duties of conscience that arise from the belief system that he's promoting, which is Marxist liberation theology, retooled into a kind of... Uh, critical education uh, theory program. 
retooling the entire point of education, as a matter of fact, to achieve the goals of liberation theology, which is the conscientization of people. And it's so explicit in, in Friday's project that this is what's going on that I think we should look just a little deeper. Um, it's it's really, really clear, not just from this Easter thing in chapter 10 that I read from a minute ago, not just from Giroux's, uh comment in his introduction that he wrote to the book, but the opening to the sixth chapter, I think, of this book, The Politics of Education, kind of gives it away. Uh, Friday opens this chapter with a short and curiously philosophical section that he's putting there literally to pull a standard Marxist trick. The title of the section is, Every Educational Practice Implies a Concept of Man in the World. Now, this is a little bit of Marxist philosophical sleight of hand upon which all the rest of his work is justified. And what that is, is he says, what the Marxist trick is, well, basically, no matter what kind of education you're offering, you have a concept of man in the world underneath it. And probably you don't even know that. You aren't even aware of it. Therefore, we being aware of it and we being oriented toward liberation and justice while you are reproducing problems, we have every right to impose our conception of man in the world through education, because everybody's already doing it anyway. And in some sense, every every uh, educational practice is already kind of a religion. So we get to do ours explicitly because we have the right one. Everybody's doing it anyway. So if we have education, we should get to do it. And then we have the right one. So everybody else's education is bad. This is the Marxist sleight of hand, right? And so what he's, the essential claim that he's making is that there's no such thing as a neutral approach to education because they all rest on what he considers to be political value judgments. Then you hear that throughout everything in education now. Um, I hear it repeated by people on the right now. There's no such thing as a value-neutral education. No such thing as a value-neutral education. That's the critical line. And it's being repeated by people on the right who think they're going to save education because they don't understand what they're actually looking at. It's perplexing them. Um, because what Freddy is actually doing is declaring the Marxist theology is the only valid concept of man in the world. He just doesn't quite say so explicitly. He says, Experience teaches us not to assume that the obvious is clearly understood. So it is with this truism... Sorry, so it is with the truism... I've got my inflection wrong again. So it is with the truism with which we begin. All educational practice implies a theoretical stance on the educator's part. This stance in turn implies, sometimes more, sometimes less explicitly, an interpretation of man and the world. It could not be otherwise. The process of men's orientation in the world involves not just the association of sense images as for animals. It involves, above all, thought language. That is, the possibility of the act of knowing through his praxis, by which man transforms reality. For man, this process of orientation in the world can be understood neither as a purely subjective event, nor as an objective or mechanistic one, but only as an event in which subjectivity and objectivity are united. Orientation in the world so understood places the question of the purposes of action at the level of critical perception of reality. So this isn't actually a mere question of whether or not education is values neutral as the critical pedagogues and apparently my friends on the right are tending to assert that it cannot be. They're saying, well, education has to imply certain values. We're going to imply, say, American values or American civics values. And that's 
the same thing as what we're what, what when the critical pedagogues say we're going to do leftist values. But no, it's not the same thing, right? So my friends on the right who miss this, who don't understand this, and in a dangerously important way, are forced to accept the critical view, and that puts them on Marxist turf, where they then proceed to lose because then it's there, there's no adjudication here any longer between these values. They have your your values, you have my values. This is your truth, my truth, and you fight it out in a sectarian conflict where there's no means of resolution. Everybody gets to do their own values, apparently. What's actually happening here is not values. It's the insertion of an entire worldview, not values. An entire worldview on what amounts to be a complete intellectual swindle, the intellectual swindle of Marxism that I just explained. You see, because that swindle is unmasked, if we read a little further in Friday, um, by realizing that what he's effectively doing is saying that the Marxist dialectical framing, quote, in which subjectivity and objectivity are united, is the true framing for reality. And it's either that people are more or less aware, explicitly aware of this so-called fact, which Friday actually asserts is self-evident. And that self-evident thing is really important. That's why this isn't about values. It's about what is and is not self-evident in an organizational uh, schemata for the entire world and how it works and man's role within it, which is the underlying possibility, possible underlying architecture for theology, which we have every reason to believe is what Friday is actually forwarding. And of course, we do see that, you know, his his worldview is the Marxist theology. He said it here. He said it previously. It gets reaffirmed by Drew, who says that what he offers as a prophetic vision is prophetic because it means building the kingdom of God here on earth in association with the oppressed. And so this is what he means by self-evident is that he's already accepted it. And of course, everything is self-evident when you've already accepted that it's true. It's the same swindle that Karl Marx pulled off in the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts from 1844, where he did the same trick to say that man is a transforming being who blah, 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 the whole thing. So in practical terms, this means that when we're debating whether or not education can or should be value, values neutral, we're not only just missing the point, but we're landing ourselves in Marx's chart and we're going to lose. We are opening up the idea that there that, that uh, you know, liberal society is the same as theological society, which it's not. That's the realm of values, is in kind of the theological realm or the metaphilosophical realm, if we want to pull out of the, the, the deity sphere. But it's not. And there's a very important difference. This question isn't about values. This question is about the underlying theory of man in the world. That's not values. The theory of man in the world. What is the world? Why does it exist? How does it work? Who is man? What makes man a man? And what is his role in the world? Those are fundamentally theological questions. And according whether there's a God involved or not, according to First Amendment jurisprudence, once you have a theory of man in the world that gives rise to duties of conscience, which we just heard from Giroux is certainly the case here, and Friday makes the point over and over and over again, you must take action. For what? Cultural revolution. You must take action. You must take action. You're dealing with a religion. That's not what liberalism is or offers. 
liberalism is at its heart, actually, believe it or not, is secular. Because the Calvinists who set up the system in the first place in conjunction with some other people were sick of having their religions oppressed. So they didn't want the state to be able to dictate the religion. Hence our First Amendment, freedom of conscience, freedom of belief. That's what even John Locke was after when he said we have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and property. Because when those are secured, we have the right to belief. We have the right to conscience. We can't be killed, we can't be imprisoned, we can't have our homes taken away from us or our, our ability to, to sustain ourselves taken away from us if we have our life, our liberty, and our property so that we are forced to change our mind according to what somebody else wants us to believe. See, in the West, we've accepted a liberal theory of man in the world, which is not actually very theological. It is, in fact, minimal. It is as close to self-evident as we can get. And then contained within that is that liberty of conscience, which is that First Amendment right that we're actually talking about here. So under a, in, in the liberal conception, we have a basic humility-oriented frame. It's very important to understand that it's humili humility-oriented. It starts with the belief that, you know what, we're not God. We don't know. We don't know the true knowledge. We don't know the true nature of God. So the state... Certainly, and nobody has the authority to step in and determine for any individual what conception of man in the world they have to advance. The state cannot advance a particular conception of the man in the world beyond some very rudimentary basic framework that actually could be philosophically argued to be self-evident. The liberal framework is just this. It's very simple, that we are beings that are, exist, that are capable of reason in some limited fashion, who as a result have certain inalienable rights that are secured with our consent by our government so that we cannot have forced upon us some more specific conception of man in the world. We can't have Calvinism in, inserted or imposed upon us. We can't have forced upon us Catholicism. We can't have Islam forced upon us. We also couldn't, we can't have Marxism forced upon us. The state, in other words, cannot dictate to us what our capacity for reason is purposed for if anything at all, whether that's to serve and glorify God, whether it's to submit to Allah, whether it's to transcend all worldly suffering and reach the high state of nirvana or samsara or whatever it is in Buddhism, or whether that's to ascertain the subject-object dialectic so that we realize, realize ourselves to be transformative beings, subjects, in fact, working to build the world into a Marxist utopia, a kingdom of God here on earth. The state cannot adjudicate what our capacity for belief and reason is to be purposed for. That's the essence of the First Amendment. And that's exactly what a critical education overrides. Just like a Christian education would, just like an Islamic education would, just like a Buddhist education would. It's not to say you can't have those things. It's to say that they can't be endorsed by the state. This isn't a question of values at all, then. This isn't whether we're doing values-neutral education. This is a question of how values are determined in the first place, which is what the liberal project, the secular aspect, the First Amendment aspect of the liberal project, attempts to sidestep, to say that the state and no other entity that's a ward of the state, has the like a public school, has the authority to dictate that to you. State endorsement of Freudian education, which assumes the Marxist dialectical concept explicitly then, which says that our being is such that we are meant to transform the world for particular ends, 
including building the kingdom of God here on earth and an association with the oppressed, apparently, is therefore an unambiguous First Amendment violation in the United States in the same way that endorsing an explicitly Christian concept of man and the world would be. In fact, under a Freudian concept, it would not be possible for a Christian to believe in God in any other way than given in Freud's liberation theology. Because if you do, then you are actually doing it wrong, and you have to be corrected. It assumes a theory of man in the world. That unambiguously violates their rights. So if you're a kid, you're say you're a Christian kid, going to a public school that's teaching Freudian pedagogy, or critical pedagogy, anything derived from Freud, actually, because that, that seeks to conscientize, that seeks to, to raise a critical consciousness, any of that, then you're having your First Amendment rights to hold your own religion without having a different concept of man and the world imposed upon it. Freud makes this point clear regarding the, the prophetic church throughout this book, this chapter 10 of the same book. We could read that if we had time. So private schools that want to be Freudian or critical pedagogy-based, critical education-based private schools can exist just fine in the United States, just as any other private religious school could, subject to the same laws and policies that apply to any other religious school. And they can and should be recognized and declared as such. But this isn't a question of values education. This is the question of the imposition of a theory of man in the world. And like I said, you could say that liberalism does offer a theory of man in the world. This is a little catch that they're playing with here. But that one is minimal and genuinely self-evident. It assumes the smallest amount possible. We are beings that exist who can reason. It doesn't actually assume more than that. It doesn't assume that we're good at reasoning. In fact, it assumes that we're not and that we have inalienable rights, it doesn't assume that we have them. It says that we have them as a result of the fact that we are reasoning beings. And so it assumes that we are beings who have access to reason. That is a fairly self-evident statement about what man is. It doesn't assume anything about the world except that it exists and is knowable, can be learned about. It doesn't say you have to learn about it in a subject-object dialectical fashion through dialectical materialism or dialectical structuralism or some other theory of how it works. It doesn't even say you have to adopt a particular model of physics or any other thing. All it says is that the world exists and we can know something about it because we are beings of reason, at least in some limited fashion. That's a very, very, very minimal concept of man in the world. So we're not asserting values by starting from that place. You are, however, asserting values if you try to inject a Christian metaphysic on top of that, or theology on top of that, or a Marxist one that sees us as Friday and, uh, as we heard Henry Giroux frame it. So my assessment here is Paulo Freire and his critical education theory unambiguously violate the First Amendment to the Constitution and Paulo Freire's critical education theory and everything that follows from it, everything that seeks to raise a critical consciousness is a First Amendment violation and must be stripped from every public school in the United States immediately. <laughs>